Well, good morning, Harvest Muskoka, Harvest Perry Sound. It's good to be with you this morning. We're going to pick it up in Psalm 51. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 51. If, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and one of our ushers will make sure and get a Bible into your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, take that one home. It's our gift to you so that you can have a copy of God's Word. Picking it up in the third of, of, of a series on sin that, that pa- Pastor Kai started for us right at the turn of the new year. And, and uh, if you've got a church growth strategy, uh, it's probably not going to involve starting the year uh, doing a topic on sin. Um, and yet I have found this sermon series incredibly stirring uh, and convicting in my own heart uh, and, and, and find my heart eager, but, but, but a little bit nervous as we get into God's word today uh, from Psalm 51. Before we get into Psalm 51, I need to give us some context though. Um, psalm 51, is, it's, it's a pretty famous psalm. Um, David is, is, is King David. He's, he's uh, writing these words that, that many of you, if you've been in church, you've, you've heard these words. This, this is a go-to for you. There's songs written about sections of verses in this psalm. Um, but, but let me give you some context because without the context, we can't understand the heart of God in David's confession and prayer in Psalm 51. So uh, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to be reading some excerpts from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. So this is David, Um, he's in his kingdom. In in the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So a couple things, he's at the height of his power. So if, 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 any, if any and everybody in their career has an upswing and then, a, and then a decline, you see it in pro athletes, the easiest, they've got their, their prime of their career and then they fall off, assuming they're not taking steroids, they're gonna fall off eventually anyway. Like, like you've always gotta fall off. He's at the height of his reign. He's supposed to be off at war. He's not. And here's what happens. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof with the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sees this beautiful woman, her name's Bathsheba, bathing. He has her in, some commentators would say, in him having her in, it was by no choice of her own. She had no choice though, so she went because she was being forced to do so. And in so doing, he raped her in lane with her and she became pregnant. Whoops. So context further, David does this deplorable thing before Bathsheba, before Uriah, who happens to be one of his best soldiers. So instead of owning the sin and then bringing the sin into the light, David begins to scheme, control, and try to cover the scheme. He draws Uriah back from the battlefield so that Uriah would come home on a furlough, on a rest, and maybe he would lay with his wife um, in coming home, and then we could blame the pregnancy on Uriah because he came home from battle before he went back to battle. Uriah comes home. He's a solid dude. He wants to be back with his dudes in, in the army fighting the war that they're supposed to be at, that David's supposed to be at. He comes home. He will not lay with his wife. In fact, he sleeps outside, outside the closed door plan to cover up didn't work so Uriah is set to go back David has to come up with another plan to cover this sin with Bathsheba and he writes new orders to Joab who's the general of the army new orders and the orders say they're sealed orders okay New orders that say, send Uriah to the hardest spot of the battle to where the most death is happening and send him in and then pull back so that he can die. Uriah is literally given his death orders and takes him to Joab. Isn't that crazy? He knowingly sends him to his death. All why? To cover his own sin. To cover his own sin. And then it says this. It says, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back. And he is struck down. 
When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Problem averted, right? Sin atoned for, covered up, patch it up, move on. Let's keep reading, though. It says this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So David goes to great lengths to cover over, hide, sidestep, and, and, and smooth over the reality of his sin. So let's count up the sins up to this point. He should have been, as the king of the nation, he should have been at war. He wasn't. So he sins against the nation. Second sin, he sins against Uriah. One of his greatest soldiers and that he took Uriah's wife when it, she wasn't his to take. He sins against Bathsheba and he sins before a holy God. And you think it's done and over. And God gives Nathan the prophet a word from himself to deliver to David. And here's Nathan in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. He says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he grew it up with him and with his children. It used to eat of, his, of the morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger greatly kindled against the man. So Nathan, I mean, you got to give props to Nathan because Nathan is given a vision, a word from the Lord. He brings it to, Devin, to, to David to out him of his sin. He says, hey, there's this poor man. He had this little bitty lamb and then there's this rich man with a ton of lambs. He had a guest but didn't want to use one of his own. So he took the poor man's lamb. David's rage and anger begins to boil. And before he can even utter a word, Nathan says, you're the man. You're the man. He's outed. No sin averted, no sidestepping. The cover over is, has, been, has been brought into the light. And here is David's response. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. So we're about to get into Psalm 51, which is the expounding on David's brokenness here. But I, let me just be honest before we get into the psalm. This story has always troubled me. Because let me, let me tell you what God says about David that he doesn't say about anybody else in Scripture. God says that David is a man after his own heart. What? Who has a woman up and rapes her, kills the husband because she's pregnant, sins against the kingdom to try to cover it over, has to be outed because he won't even confess? A man after his own heart? Are you kidding me? So we're, we got rape, we got murder, the baby that, she, that Bathsheba's pregnant with dies later, so we've got a dead baby now? And he's a man after his own heart? This is troubling. And yet, when we get into Psalm 51, we're going to see some things, brothers and sisters, that have subdued my heart throughout the week. The last two weeks of this sermon series, I've kind of like not wanted to come to church, but could not come to church. And Sunday's my day off, so I don't have to be up here on Sundays, just so you know. Like some of the other pastors. And yet, this, this conversation from God's word about sin and our sin before a holy God, it has me pushing back a bit because I see things in me that still need refining. And, and when I read about David, I've done things that David's done. I've hid sin. I've lied. I've deceived. And I have hurt others as a result of my sin. And, and, and I read this and I'm like, my sin is before me. We're gonna see that David says here in a few minutes. And yet David repents and God extends forgiveness. And so I think there's, there's going to be a sharp press from God's word. 
But there's a beautiful sweetness if we'll listen to what God has to say through his servant David. Psalm 51. There's several themes that are drawn out in Psalm 51, and I'm going to try to pull them out by going verse to verse. The first is found in the first two verses. It's the appeal for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. So he says, have mercy. I love what David says here. He's, he's, he's putting himself under the mercy of God, but before God pleading for mercy, and it's not from his own merit. So keep in mind what God said about David that he's not said about anybody else in scripture. He's a man after my own heart. I don't know about you, but if I've been busted before, and I can think back to times when I was in my parents' home still, when I was a teenager, and they would bust me on something, and I would try to sidestep it or get out from it, and I would, or I would say, well, look at all the good that I've done, Mom and Dad. It's not like I mess up every day. It's just this one little thing. David, of all people, according to what God says about David, could have come to God and said, Big dumb mistake, God. Remember, man after your own heart. Crossing fingers, crossing legs. Remember? Nope. The fact that he appeals to the mercy of God, which means he knows that he may not get that mercy. He doesn't appeal to any merit of his own. He doesn't appeal to any good work that he's done up to that point. He doesn't appeal to anything that God's done through him up to that point. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Circle that word, steadfast love. That word, that phrase, steadfast love, that is covenantal love. This says something massive about David's relationship with God. This is no head knowledge, brothers and sisters. This is no touch and go relationship with God. He understands God to be the covenant making God of the scriptures and he is, he is basically saying your faithful love is unending. I've experienced it, I know it and I'm calling upon that to receive your mercy. He pleads with the Lord. Jesus talks about a parable in Luke 18 and he says this, Luke 18, this is a parable that Jesus says. He says two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In our brokenness over sin, we have nothing to stand on. There's no merit. There is no one in this room that's lived life good enough where they could come before God after sin like David, which we've all committed by thought or deed at the very least, and say, God, but look what I've done. And you know what Jesus says about that? You will never in, enter into the kingdom of heaven if you think you bring anything to the table. You know, it's, it's nearly like when you learn about the gospel and you grow in the depths of the gospel, the more that I follow Christ and the more that I reflect on the glories of Christ's sacrifice for us, the good news of the gospel, I think the more that I realize the only thing we bring to the table is just a bunch of crummy brokenness. That's it. What I bring to the table before a holy God is unbelievable brokenness that, that is capable of the same depravity of sin that we're reading about our brother David. Repentance can easily become a, for, a form of self-atonement where we see our lacking, we know we've fallen short, and we seek to draw some other atonement in to try to present it before God so that he might be pleased with us. In our sin, we are despicable before a holy God. Let that set in for a second. Before a holy God in our sin, we are deplorable. David knew this. David knew this. 
And he knew that he couldn't hearken or beckon on any of his good works, any of his good deeds, any of his merits to invoke any mercy. Second thing that we see right here under this plea, this appeal for mercy, he says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David sees that his sin needs the type of washing that is more thorough than he can do himself. So you ever heard the term behavior modification? Yeah, we just got past the New Year's resolutions, right? And so most of us have already failed them, I'm assuming, right? Y'all didn't make any resolutions? You know what a resolution is. I'm gonna do this different going into the new year and we've probably all squandered all that. Hey, this is a safe place. I know it doesn't feel like it because I'm coming heavy at you, but, but we fall short early and often, okay? And the type of cleansing that David recognizes is needed because of his sin and disease and depravity is the type of washing and cleansing that he can't produce on himself. At best, he can white knuckle and behavior modify to try to look the part, but we're gonna find out later his heart's still wicked, which is inside of him, and all the behavior modification in the world doesn't change that. And then this other part here under the appeal, and I I love this part. This is, brother and sister, hear this, because David's gonna set this up for us in such a helpful way. He says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You hear any blame there? If Bathsheba hadn't have been bathing naked outside, first of all, who does that? Even in that time, that wasn't normal. She's not innocent in this deal, okay? My iniquity, my sin. You hear the ownership? Brokenness before the Lord and confession requires ownership. The single most thing that I see that hijacks God's working in his people's lives is lack of ownership. The more you sidestep, the more you blame, the more you're able to pin it on something else. There's no freedom there. There is no healing there. Ownership. Are we more like Adam and Eve? Remember Adam and Eve in the garden when sin enters? What does Adam say? It's it's the woman that you gave me. You hear any ownership there? He's 0 for 2. And then Eve. It's the serpent. No ownership. What I believe plagues us most in our non-repentance and inability to walk in confession and repentance is the inability to square up with our sin. We always want to be able to soften it. There is no soft sin before a holy God. Do you hear me? It's wicked. It's deplorable. We are unworthy like, why are you screaming, pastor? Because this is serious. Sin before a holy God is not a small thing. It's not. And what keeps us from walking in freedom is the inability to own it. David says, my sin, my iniquity. He moves from an appeal. Let me read this before I get into the confession. True repentance confesses guilt and doesn't base hope for forgiveness on its own deeds or merits. There is no self-atonement that can cleanse our sins. If God has mercy, it will only be through his good grace and his choosing. You could live awesome Monday through Friday and royally screw up on Saturday, and you can't call Monday through Friday in as a witness to attest to your awesomeness. You and I, Scripture says that if Christ isn't in us, there is no awesomeness in us. Before a holy God, we are wretched sinners. So there's the appeal for mercy, and then he moves to the confession in verses three through six. Verse three, for I know my transgressions and my sin are ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So I'm gonna stop right there. A couple things that, that David does really well for us. He talks about first, against you and you only have I sinned. That's vertical. He sees his sin before a holy God. This you see also in the prodigal, Luke 15. Write it down. Um, a phenomenal three parables. The lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. 
The prodigal in the lost son of that story in Luke 15 displays what we're seeing here from David. He sees his sin before a holy God vertically. So the story of the prodigal, and Pastor Kai preached on it a couple months ago, phenomenal sermon. Remember he had the signs that said gasp? Remember, <gasps> Remember the, the outlandish, outlandish scenarios in that sermon? One of them was when the son who had squandered everything, the younger, entitled, punk of a son, squanders all of the inheritance that his father had given him that he had no business getting at that point in his life, he goes off into a distant land and he squanders it. And it gets worse and worse and worse. Isn't that just how sin is? Like, he squanders his inheritance. That, to me, that's bad enough. You, you're not eating, or you're not eating near as well. Then a severe famine arises. Then he starts working for pigs. He's, he would have been a Jew. That's the worst job you could have. Then he starts craving the pig's food. And it says in the scriptures that he came to his senses. In other words, he began to repent and remember the Father's love. And he has this thought, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against my father. Well, it's a good thought. Let's see if he walks it out. He goes to his father. His father runs to him. And it's nearly like before he can even utter a word. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. Brokenness, true repentance, true confession, see sin against God and his holiness and God alone. Now, wait, wait, wait. David sinned against Bathsheba. Wait, didn't, didn't he sin against Uriah? Didn't he sin against, sin against the entire kingdom? But he acknowledges and sees his sin before a holy God. And then that blameless in your judgment. And this is another form of ownership. You know what? Whatever you decide, I've earned it. You remember the thief on the cross? There, there's Jesus in the middle and there's the two thieves. And they're going back and forth. The thieves are. One of the thieves said, hey, if you're the Messiah, why don't you save yourself and save us? He's toying with Christ. He's, he's trying to save his own skin. He's badgering Christ a bit. The other thief, the one that ended up in paradise and received salvation, he basically scolds and tells the other thief to be quiet. And he says, we deserve this. He doesn't. That's what David is saying. I've earned whatever penalty you decide to do. True confession and repentance before the Lord is willing to accept any consequences that come its way. So if you find yourself trying to wiggle out from underneath or sidestep or, or, or soften the blow, might it just mean that you're not broken before a holy God, which means true confession and repentance escape you? There is an immense contrast here to the self-absorbed outlook of 2 Samuel 11 where David's only concern is covering up. His only concern in 2 Samuel 11. Now, let's, let's just revisit 2 Samuel 11 and 12. We read that in a few minutes. That happened over many days. So it's not like in a 10-minute span, David decided to lie and deceive and then all of a sudden he was broken. He stuck with the plan for days. He was willing to let it play out all the way to the end. He was never contrite on his own. And then God, by his mercy, sends Nathan to speak right into the middle of David's soul, and he's broken before a holy God. He's changed. He's seen things differently. He recognizes the wrath that could fall on him is earned, and he is not covering or making excuses anymore. His burden, his plea is how could I treat God like this? How could I do it? I'll never forget. Um, when me and my wife got married, I've been married 12 years. Um, I had had a pornography struggle in college for years, kind of on and off, get into seminary. And by God's grace, not because my heart had changed, I thought I just kind of mastered that struggle, that lust struggle. But, but, but just by God's grace, I didn't struggle with pornography those four years. So I'm going into marriage thinking like free and clear, Free and clear, and I'll never forget, a couple months into our marriage, uh, I was building my counseling practice. She was working a full-time job, so I was home during the day, and temptation came on me like crazy. And I went and looked at some things I shouldn't have and did things that I shouldn't have done, and immediately, immediately I knew, oh my gosh, what have I done? What have I done? This is going to obliterate my wife. I saw it only horizontally, okay? I knew I had to tell her. She came home 
that evening, and I said, hey, could we go get chat? We had a friend staying with us. So we went for a drive, ended up in a parking lot, and just she's like, what's going on? And so I just spilled it all and told her everything. Again, it's pretty much horizontal. I mean, there's some good God stuff happening in my heart as far as conviction, but I'm really just like worried about this, me and her. And she was broken. Worse than I had even thought in my head it would be. It went worse. And the Lord pricked my heart the way that David is here. The Lord said, see how your sin affects her? How much more me? Godly sorrow sees our sin as an affront on the Father who is holy, who's given us everything. And we would treat it so lightly. Do you see? Do you see why it's important that he sees his sin before the Lord? Yes, there's damage horizontally. But who is he sinned against? A holy God. He talks about that blameless in his judgment. And then he talks about being brought forth from iniquity. This is such a great part for us to really understand the heart of God when it comes to true confession and repentance. Verse five. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So he's not talking about being an illegitimate baby. He's not saying my mama messed up, she had an affair with some dude, and I'm the byproduct of that. That, That's not what happened, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that my first breath as an infant was an offense before a holy God. He's talking about original sin. When Adam sinned, we sinned. He's talking about the nature of fallen man and woman. That my first breath was an offense before holy God. We got four kids and I'll never forget when this was most obvious to me, this truth about myself. When my oldest was three months old, I remember going to put him in the car seat. You know, the, the, the backwards facing car seat, you know, like, he's like 10 years old. He's gonna be in a car seat till he's in high school, I think, with all the laws they've got on these things. But this is when they probably legitimately needed to be in one. Um, and it was one of those rear-facing car seats, and I had to kind of lean over one of the seats to get him in there. And that little sucker, he was arching his back and doing any and everything he could to not conform to what his daddy was trying to get him to do. Who taught him that? Did he pick that up from me? He's three months old. Who taught him that? He's a sinner. He was born into sin. His first breath before a holy God was offensive. Listen, like this needs to weigh in. Like we're never neutral when it comes to wickedness. We were born wicked and we just get wickeder unless something intervenes. And this is what David's calling on. He knows the depths of his depravity, and he knows if he's going to be washed, it's going to have to be from something or somebody wholly outside of him to wash him, and he's calling on that. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Verse six, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret hearts. This is where five and six really come together in a beautiful way. He's talking about the center point of who we are. That our sin is never just a behavioral issue or a cognitive or a thinking issue. Our sin is derived from somewhere far deeper. So if you go back a couple years, you can find a sermon that I did called The Theology of the Heart. Okay? And, and, and that was right when we moved here, and it was really to try to build a, a culture of biblical soul care. And to, to, to really understand how God pursues his children, we have to understand that God pursues us on the level of the heart. When God took dirt in Genesis 2, before there's any sin, he breathed life into that dirt and created the soul. The heart, the soul, the inner man, those are interchangeable terms to describe God breathing eternality inside of us. It's amazing. Meaning... You and I were created to worship. You know why people act like idiots at sporting events? Because they were created to worship something bigger than them. You know what it also means? 
You're never neutral when it comes to worship. So when sin entered the world, our hearts began to worship everything but God. And David is saying, my biggest problem isn't even that I have lust. My biggest problem is that I have a heart disorder. I need a heart transplant. Like Proverbs 4.23 talks about the wellspring of life. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus teaches about the implications of the heart. One of my favorites is found in Matthew 23, where Jesus is talking about this very idea. Matthew 23, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." See how Jesus treats that? David understands this. David understands it's not enough. First of all, I don't have any merit to bring before a holy God that can grant me the mercy that I know I need to clean me. Even if I could. It's still not my biggest problem. I think one of the most powerless things that I experience as a pastor is when I'm sitting with people that I'm trying to lead towards Christ knowing that there's heart issues and I can't do anything about their heart. You know how utterly powerless I am and you are to do anything about the deepest problem that ails me? And David rightly sees my biggest problem is my heart. You're gonna need to give me a new heart. You're gonna need to cleanse my heart. That true confession and repentance is deeply spiritual. Recognizing that our deepest need for healing and cleansing is derived from the heart and only God can deal with and change our hearts. So if there's one thing that you really took away from this. Okay, maybe two. Ownership, huge. Own it, I did it. <laughs> you know the, the gateways of grace flood open where there's ownership and brokenness? And then a pleading for God, restore my heart, renew my heart. And now he shifts to restoration and renewal. Pick it up in verse seven. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. It's this beautiful picture that he's using incredible vivid imagery to describe the type of cleansing that's going to need to take place. That word purge literally means to descend. Like de-sin, D-E-S-I-N, to de-sin me. He's saying, de-sin me. If you've ever like worked with rusty metals that you're trying to restore, you take them and get them sandblasted to get all the rust off them so that you can use them as a restorative for whatever you're using that for. He's saying, de-sin me, de-scale me, de-rust me. And that imagery of hyssop, it's, it's imagery that, that invokes um, several big gospel pointings, shadows towards Christ coming. The, the hyssop was an herb that was branchy. And they would take the hyssop and they would dip it in the sacramental, sacra, sacramental blood, the covenant blood, and they would sprinkle it seven times on a person with leprosy. Leprosy, which is used throughout scripture to describe in a very extreme but real way the condition of our rotting hearts. We don't deal with leprosy this day and age, especially in the West, but people still get leprosy. Like they die a slow death. Their body just rots away. That's the picture of sin. So the ceremonial cleansing for leprosy to not only cleanse, but to heal of the leprosy in Leviticus was with the hyssop dipped in the blood and sprinkled seven times. Sound familiar? Sound like Jesus in there? You know the other way they use the hyssop? Go back to the Exodus, when the Passover, the death angel, they dipped hyssop and painted the doorposts with blood, and any house with the blood on the doorpost, the death angel passed over. Again, sound familiar? What David is calling on here 
is a salvation that is supernatural. (laughs) He's calling on a cleansing that goes well beyond a shower, that goes well beyond behavior modification, that goes well beyond New Year's resolutions. He's calling on a salvation and cleansing that only God can bring. Seen in its true setting, the heartfelt and humble pleading leads the broken from confession to the brink of praise. And that's, I mean, that's what we're seeing. What's happening is this growing healing is happening in the heart of David and he's seeking purging and healing and cleansing from outside of himself in a supernatural way and his heart is becoming glad and free in this place and then verse eight, he says this, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. This is violent grace. Violent grace. It speaks to the Lord bringing conviction. So what if God never tells Nathan to go out David on his sin and he leaves David to go on sinning and covering all the dumber? Is that loving or unloving? That sounds a bit like wrath if you ask me. You know what, David? You're blind. Have at it. And you won't even know it. You'll literally walk yourself off a cliff. The very fact that God would send Nathan right smack into David's rebellious, covering heart to out him means he loves him. It's conviction. This sweet conviction that brings life. Oh, but it stings, right? No one wants to feel 10,000 spotlights down on them. And David's saying, you, you broke my bones. This means God wants restoration and reconciliation. If he didn't, he never would have warned him. He never would have convicted him. He wants reconciliation and restoration. The Puritans described conviction like a bitter pill that's sweet to the soul. It's great imagery. You, you, you ever got a horse pills stuck sideways in your esophagus and you can taste the bitterness of it. It doesn't taste good. Bitter cough syrup, that's conviction. But it is sweet to the soul. And this picture of the bones being broken leading to true repentance, true healing, that true confession and repentance, see healing is coming through Christ alone and embraces the painful, painfulness of conviction and brokenness, knowing deep down that by nature, God is a forgiving God, and he crushes what he intends to purify. I think it says in the scriptures, until a seed can die, there is no grain. That this dying work, that conviction and brokenness brings God uses to bring life and healing and reconciliation. David's heart sees God's intent in all of this. He's broken and contrite. Verse nine. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So he's these bones that have been violently broken. He's, he's hearkening back to Psalm 32. Read Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is before he's been outed by Nathan. He's just rotting in his lack of confession. He's rotting in his place of deceit and cover up. And he says in Psalm 32, my bones were wasting away. And then God sends Nathan to obliterate David. And in that place of brokenness, he sees his sin. He desires that these sins would be blotted out. His iniquities would be taken care of. And he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This word create, it's the same phrase as used in Genesis 1 and 2 when God creates everything from nothing. Let's just, it's fair to say that no one in this room has created anything from nothing. Is that fair? Even if you made an awesome Lego at some point. You didn't make the Legos. 
Even if you built the house, you didn't make the wood, much less the saw that cut the wood, much less the hammer that hammered the nails into the wood. We don't make anything from nothing. When he says, create in me, he's saying, you're going to have to do something supernatural in me. You hear the salvation? He's not calling on, I want to act differently. I want to behave differently. You're going to need to create something new in me, Lord. Something new and holy and righteous. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. There's a special anointing that rested on the kings that God raised up. You see it with Saul, you see it with David, there's this special spirit-filled anointing. David would have seen Saul's anointed removed. The, the ending days of Saul were not great. King Saul, not good. Talk about a pride-filled man. God removed his anointing from Saul. David would have seen this. <laughs> David's saying, I've disqualified myself to lead your people through my sins. Create in me a clean heart. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit. He's saying, I want to be useful. Please don't pull your anointing from me. I want to be used by you. He's pleading. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your, I've misquoted this for years. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He's saying, let me experience joy and peace again. The same joy and peace that you lavished on me when you saved me. It's your salvation that you've granted to me. So you didn't come to Jesus. You know that, right? He opened your eyes and you responded. That's what the whole of scripture is going to say. Because scripture is going to equally say that Nothing good lives in me apart from Christ Jesus. I don't want anything to do with him. But he begins that effectual call to woo me. He begins to, the scales begin to fall off my eyes. I didn't make them fall off. He begins to woo my heart. I was sitting with a brother a couple weeks ago. We were just kind of chatting over coffee. And, and, he, and he was just sharing some things that the Lord was teaching him and some things that he'd been showing him the last couple years. And keep in mind, this is a guy who does not call Christ his Lord and Savior, okay? And we were just kind of going back and forth and just really enjoying each other over a cup of coffee. And, and as he was talking, I'm like, dude, you're on the clock. Like, Jesus is about to save you. And you don't even know it. Like, you're saying all the right things. You're asking all the right questions. How do you even know to ask that? You didn't even grow up in the church, and God is just wooing this guy in, and he's beginning to acknowledge his need for a Savior outside of himself and is prepared to give his heart to Jesus Christ. That's how salvation works. We respond to the work that he's doing. Meaning, let's go back to the conviction piece. If you never feel the conviction of the Lord, I'm nervous for you. It means a couple things, potentially. You do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so this same guilt that David is pleading would be erased from him is squarely on you. There is no blood to cleanse your sin in that place if you are not under the headship and lordship of Jesus Christ. Or you are a believer, but you've fallen so away that your conscience is seared and your heart's in danger. And I believe once you come to salvation, Scripture would say you can't lose your salvation. But I do believe a lot of people have false conversions and they know about Jesus, but their hearts don't belong to Jesus. So the thing like conviction is so confusing to them because they never feel conviction over their sin. They, they never feel the weight of their sin before a holy God. They see the implications of it when they make their spouse angry. They see the implications of it when they're doing damage control because of problems that they caused horizontally, but before a holy God, very little spiritual conviction. Godly sorrow is deeply spiritual and deeply aware that I've sinned before God. Cast me not away. And, then I, and I love that. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. So true confession and repentance. See, healing 
is coming through Christ alone, embracing the painful conviction and brokenness, knowing that deep down heart work can only happen through God as he crushes and convicts us. I want to tell you a quick story. Um, had the privilege to walk with this family early in my pastoral ministry when I still lived in Texas. And I get a call one day at the office. And this, I was friends with this couple. Um, our kids were around the same age at the time. They had triplets and then they had an older son. So they went from one to four in like a day. Kind of crazy. Um, he had a great job as an accountant, like made a lot of money. They, they were living the American dream which I'm just gonna call that maybe not a good thing. <laughs> um, they were living the American dream. They had an awesome salary, awesome house, best school district in the entire DFW Metroplex. They were on the right track. Very involved in the church, very known in the church. Get a call from this woman. I have to talk to you. I have to talk. You know, so I cleared part of my day. It was that urgent. She comes in, me and another pastor sit down with her. We have... We have long-standing relationship with this family. And she begins to unpack months and months of brokenness that I had no idea she had been engulfed in. She has some significant trauma and abuse from her past that she had never dealt with. She had buried it. She got married, 10 years into marriage. All those wounds, guess what? They don't go away. So she begins to deal with those wounds the only way she knows how. She begins to start to party with some of her coworker friends. I'm not anti-party. I'm anti-kegger. I'm not anti-party. She starts to party, starts to get a bit heavier. Partying's not just like celebrating a good meal anymore with good friends. Partying is like, can't live if we're not doing something. Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, she is beginning to drift from her family. Drugs begin to be introduced. She begins to have multiple affairs over these months, and she lays this entire story out to me. And she is overwhelmed in her sorrow. And here's the thing, she had a Nathan moment a friend of hers who introduced her some of the very prescription drugs and illegal drugs that she was using, he's not a Christian. He begins to tell her, I liked you better before you started using. Are you kidding me? Like, I liked you better before you partied so much. Like, God uses that moment from that pagan to blow her up. She literally got off the phone with him she called the church and drove straight to the church. Tells me the length of the story. She dumps her purse on my desk. I saw things that I can't unsee. We're flushing drugs down the commode. We're getting rid of just debauchery. And she's broken under her sin. And I read Psalm 51 to her. And through tears, she said, that's me. I've been wasting away. I've been wasting, and this conviction is too much. And as she began to confess and to bring her sin into the light, it's like a weight was lifted off of her. It's like the darkness began to dissipate. And then I put counsel before her. I said, you, you know you gotta go home and you gotta tell your husband. And we're gonna be praying for you. We're committed to walk with you guys through this reconciliation. And she, it's like she saw a ghost. <laughs> She's like, oh, this is gonna go terrible. But I can't not do it. You know what's interesting about this woman? She was squandering her life away. The spirit of the Lord came so heavy on her, she could not bring her sin to the light. And when she brought her sin into the light, she experienced the marvelous grace of Christ. And it went terrible with her husband. Horrific. He was angry, he was hurt. Months and months and months of biblical counseling from that point on. And all his sin got exposed because of her sin. It was a mess for many months. But then that leads us to verse 13. Then, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. This couple, they actually do marriage ministry in the church back where I'm from now. 
Like what, what should have destroyed their marriages and percentage-wise destroys most marriages, God used to humble and obliterate their sin and draw them close to his heart where true confession and true repentance happened and they were washed clean by the blood of the lamb. And you know what happens is people hear that testimony and it screams gospel. This is why when people are baptized here at the lake, we go nuts over those testimonies. You know why? That's a life changed by confession and repentance. It screams Jesus can save. This is what David's saying. David's not boasting on his awesome story. He's saying, after you wash me, after I'm broken, after you've healed me, you can use me for your namesake. This is amazing. There is no way, and here's, the, here's my, the thing that I just love about this. There is no way that David could have known how God would use Psalm 51 for the next several thousand years after he left. You know why? Because this is God's word. It wasn't David's words. This is the inspired word of God. Anybody in this room ever go to Psalm 51 for hope? Raise your hand. A lot of people. This is like a go-to for Christians. Nearly like you have to have a pillow at your house with this whole verse in stitch and embroidered on it. And you only bring it out when grandma who made it, made it. You put it back in the closet afterwards. This is that type of Christian verse. We know it, we sing it. There's songs written about these verses. There's no way David could have known how God was gonna use his brokenness and his contriteness to minister to hundreds upon thousands of men and women like you and me to lead us into life through brokenness, confession, and repentance. So he's saying, teach, use me. After you do what only you can do, use me. But this also invokes the picture of Isaiah 6. When Isaiah 6 is before God in his temple and the train of his robe fills the temple and the seraphim are saying, holy, 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 um, Isaiah is, woe to me, I'm unclean. He, he's like, I best not talk, I'm an unclean man. One of the seraphims grabs a hot burning coal, places it on his lips, and notice what is said. Who will go? Whom shall I send? When does Isaiah speak? After his lips have been purified. Confession before the Lord, brokenness and repentance, brings us into the position to be used by a holy God. When we walk in disobedience, when we walk in, walk in darkness, we quench the Spirit's working in and through our lives and his purposes. And then verse 14. Verse 14 is important because David's not oblivious to the fact that he has sinned against a lot of people. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. He's recognizing rightly my sin has done a ton of damage. This is another thing that we don't like to talk about in churches very often. It's the biblical concept of restitution. Pastor Kaizak is actually gonna preach on that soon in this series. Like, if I borrowed your car and I went and trashed your car and like threw you the keys, man, that thing corner's awesome. Grace, grace. No, no. We sin before a holy God. Our sin leaves a wake of dead people behind us. And to just wink at that as if nothing happened, the gospel in us propels us into the lives that we have hurt and damaged, pleading for forgiveness and grace in that place. David sees it. He sees his sin before God, and he sees that his sin has caused damage. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He longs to sing songs to the Lord again with a free heart. You have to be honest with yourself here. I don't pretend that we'd be honest altogether. You ever been in a worship service and you wanted to feel moved? You maybe even wanted to raise your hands, but you knew you couldn't because of the sins you were hiding? I know I'm not the only one, so I won't make you raise your hand. And you long to sing freely again? You ever felt that way? Where you're like, oh man, I can't, I can't. I want to though. That would require me bringing this into the light. That would require me laying this down. Like, I can't do it. So we fake it till we make it every week. 
when God has so much more. He's like, Lord, Lee, I've created your heart to worship. Bring it into the light, the marvelous light. Confess your sins, brother and sister. Like every Sunday, this room should be filled with lots of confessions. Not as me like a priest who's gonna grant you forgiveness. It's not what I'm talking about. It's not what David's doing here. Bringing it into the light through openness, honest confession where repentance and healing and a washing of our iniquities can happen from outside of us because we recognize I'm unworthy. So a couple months ago, um, we have a prayer night every night with my kiddos. And um, you know, we're just trying to teach them to hear from the Lord and talk to the Lord and ask of the Lord. And I came, I came to a place where I felt like, man, we do this and I'm glad we do this, but it feels like we do a lot of asking. And this is just me, like that morning, for whatever reason, the Lord kind of convicted me as the dad, as the father. And so I get back to home that, that evening, we do dinner, and then we sit down before bed and we're having our prayer time. And, and I just, I said, hey guys, you know, we typically ask the Lord, and that's good. We ask him for all kinds of things. We let you guys voice your desires, your concerns, your requests. But, but I feel like maybe we should also, maybe we should start by just thanking him. Just thank him for breath. Let's just thank him for, man, you guys have some awesome gifts that you get to play with. You have a relationship with your siblings. Let's thank him for things. You'll be amazed what kids say when they're grateful and they learn to be thankful. They thank God for the smallest things that we probably shouldn't. Uh, we probably should, and it like invokes things in you. But I think along these lines, as, like we ask a lot. But, but when's the last time you threw yourself at the altar and say, I'm unworthy, God. I'm unworthy, I mean, shouldn't we do that? Are we like that entitled punk of a younger son in the prodigal who comes to his dad and says, give me what you owe me, pop? That's not broken. That's not contrite. It's entitled. It walks with the swagger that no humbled believer in Christ walks with. There is no swagger for the Christian. We're on our knees, pleading, begging, mercy, I'm unclean. And when, what Jesus said earlier, when we come to God that way, we are always met with the cleansing blood of Christ where freedom and grace and life abound. To come with the swagger, to come entitled, it's to not come at all. Verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. I love these two verses. These are, these are some of my favorite in all of scripture. He isn't minimizing the Old Testament ceremonies. He's not minimizing the, the offerings that were to be given, the, the ceremonial cleansings that were to happen. He's not minimizing any of that. He's saying without sorrow for sin, no blood offered even matters. Does it? Like if you're not broken over your sin before a holy God, we could, we could sprinkle blood from hyssop every Sunday, all Sunday long. It doesn't matter. God desires a broken spirit and a contrite heart because that's where he does his regenerating work. This is where the gospel is so clear for us. I wanna show you something in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verses five through 10. Let me just read this because this is gonna speak to where we just were. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice is an offering you do not Desire, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. 
And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So what David is harking on, what he's, what he's invoking, what he's calling on, the mercy he is calling on, the create in me a clean heart, oh God, renew a right spirit within me, oh God, what he is calling on is a savior outside of himself. And Christ draws close to the broken and contrite and his brothers and sisters in Christ, that message never gets old. That we come in our sin, in our flesh, needing to be cleansed. And if we're in Christ, that cleansing is there, but to be free of sin, for our hearts to be made pure, broken, contrite, confession, repentance, this is what God calls us to. There's something that, that's goofy that goes on in our culture, and it, and it makes me nervous for us. It's not new. There's nothing new under the sun. It's been here since sin was introduced, but it's in our culture, and it would say that we're not as bad as we think we are. We're not as bad as it might seem. Let me just say it this way. Just go watch a Disney movie. They're going to pick up on this. And if you've seen one, you've seen them all. Tap into something good inside you. That will be your salvation. David is saying, absolutely not. There is nothing good in me. I need cleansing from the outside to be made new and right. Like if we're going to be a people that are marked by the gospel, it's confessing our sin before a holy God where our hearts can be changed and life and cleansing happens from that place. So I just want us to bow our heads, close our eyes. I'm just gonna walk us through a couple things to consider. Just heads bowed, eyes closed. This is what I want you to consider before the Lord because I believe we have an opportunity today. I mean, we love to sing songs of worship. We love to, to get that euphoric feeling, that euphoric church buzz when we gather together. But there is a time and a place before a holy God to confess our sins. Do you have an accurate view of sin? Do you see your sin before a holy God? Do you recognize that sin is deeply spiritual and that your heart is at stake? Here's a bold prayer. Are you in need of a wake up like Nathan to David? That's a prayer we wouldn't even want to really pray. Pray it. Like if that's you, like if you feel stuck in a bondage and if anybody knew what you brought in here, what that could do to your reputation, it's not worth it. Like pray for a Nathan moment today. I'm pleading with you. This is not small. Your soul will rot and wither. Bring it into the light. Confess your sin. Ask for that Nathan moment. Do you have an accurate view of God? He is holy. Like if he showed up in this room, the manifest presence of the Lord, we would be a wreck. We would be on our faces. Men and women much greater than us responded that way. We would be brought low. Confess in your heart his holiness and his matchlessness. Confess it. Confess that in our sin we assume we know better than God. Repent of self-sufficiency. Throw yourself at the mercy of the Lord. Do you have an accurate view of self? A weak view of sin by default means we have a low view of God. And in turn, we have a higher view of self than we should. David's psalm orients our hearts in each one of these areas. Do you see yourself as the unworthy slave? Or are you in danger of being the entitled prodigal son? Father, we, we come to you and we, we are desperately sick. 
Our iniquities are too great. Our wickedness is so deplorable. And we see our sins before your holiness and we do not belong. Whatever was meant to fall on us from your judgment, we deserve. Lord, would you rescue us through the grace of Christ? Would you pour out his blood on us that we might be cleansed and made new? That we might be used by you to minister to others, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth, that we might be cleansed and walk with you. Create in us a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit. Cast us not from your presence, O oh God, and please don't take your spirit Lord, restore to us the joy of your salvation all across this room. If there's one lacking salvation, Lord, would you allow them to taste it today? But for other brothers and sisters who have tasted salvation, would you pour out your sweet conviction and bring life and healing through your mercy, through Jesus' shed blood in the midst of us as the saints? So we want to respond now, Lord, in a way that is pleasing to you. We want to respond now in a way that's honest before you, God, where you would draw near to us as broken in spirit and contrite in heart, that we might be changed, that you might purify our hearts. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So a sermon like this is, I mean, I think you can probably see why I was a bit subdued, like just all week, just subdued. And I think we have a unique opportunity. I really do. Like, I, I love coming to church and getting that euphoric church buzz. I think sometimes, like, especially, like, we just need to be sober. Sober before a holy God. And that our sin is so deplorable. For it to be cleansed, something had to die. And Jesus made himself available. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. Died the death that we deserved so that we could be cleansed. I think we have an opportunity here, brothers and sisters, like they're gonna sing over us. We're gonna join in and sing at the back end, but like come to the altar, confess your sins, brokenness, contriteness, kneel at your chair. Like this is the opportunity to put ourselves into the mercy of God's grace through confession, through repentance. A broken spirit and contrite heart, he does not despise. So if you feel heavy, if you feel stuck, Confess your sins. If you feel hopeless, throw yourself under the mercy of the one who saves us through his son.